Welcome, everyone, to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by Dan Davitt, the Senior Vice President of Basketball at the NCAA, and Lynn Holtzman, the Vice President of Women's Basketball at the NCAA, to go over two highly successful NCAA tournaments, March Madness, for the men and the women. Uh, Lynn, I want to start with you. Uh, I heard no complaints uh, after last year where there were legitimate complaints. Heard no complaints. What was your overall assessment of a highly successful sold out NCAA tournament at the final four? Um, well, I think to your point, it was, it was a tremendous championship, just every round of the championship for us in women's basketball um, assessment. It was a year of first, and it was also historic in many ways for our championship. It was the first year we had 68 teams, the first year that we had a first four, the first year that we used March Madness. It was historic because we set broadcast viewership records throughout all rounds, including the women's final four. We set attendance records at all rounds. We sold out again the women's final four. Um, the priority this year going into the championship was to enhance that student athlete experience. And I think on that front, we made tremendous strides. But again, we're not done as we look toward the future. And we'll get to that momentarily. Uh, Dan, uh, you know, obviously the bubble for both of you was a Herculean effort a year ago. Uh, we, we were back to as normal as possible. What was your overall assessment of 70,000 strong in New Orleans and the whole entire lead up at all 14 sites. Well, as you mentioned, Andy, I think uh, we talk about survive and advance during the NCAA tournaments. Last year was about survival, just having championships in any way in a single site to keep everybody safe and have them be successful. And I think this year was about advancing. It was, as Lynn noted, many of the enhancements, the women's championship, and just the incredible relief and joy of having both championships be played in their normal format across the country, 21 sites for women's basketball, 14 sites for men's basketball, incredible attendance, incredible viewership. I think the whole country was just so glad to have college basketball and March Madness back in the way we've, we've remembered it after three years. Remember, it's been three years, 2019, since we had normal NCAA basketball championships. Yeah, and obviously Minnesota and New Orleans did an outstanding job of hosting at the Final Four. And Lynn, you know, <clears throat> we had a chance to talk to uh, Brie Beal from the national champion South Carolina Gamecocks. And, you know, she told us here at the Social Series, and she's not alone, in the, the, the simplicity of the greeting, of the arrival, of those kinds of moments, of the signage, um, little things that meant a lot. Uh, and, I'm, you know, now that you can sort of take that 30,000 – foot view and look back at some of those things in the planning. Uh, what, what's your overall thought on, on some of those little things that end up being a big deal to everyone from the ground level up? Well, I think to your point is that, and as she referenced, is that the little things do matter. And when you put large scale events together, you can't overlook those little things. And in our case, as additional resources and um, coordination with the men's basketball staff and others, it really was imperative for us to make sure that we paid particular attention to those little things. And again, the things that we knew that directly impacted that student athlete experience. The city of Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota stepped up. They fully embraced what they saw as their responsibility to really contribute and support um, really this kind of 
um, bringing the women's basketball final four back to the public in this manner, as Dan just noted. Um, and with that, they contributed a lot to those um, team welcomes that occurred at the airport as the teams were coming off the charter aircraft. Our branding staff did a tremendous job in the enhancement of the signage that was done throughout the entire championship. And then at the women's final four, what with the additional resources, what we were able to do around the hotels being unique for those specific teams, the fully wrapped buses so that you knew when South Carolina or any of the final four teams were driving around the city, the, the, the knowing in the city that we were there for this large scale event because of how the women's final four branding was really integrated throughout the city. It was a huge step up for us. And, and I would say what well, time, you know, well overdue. Dan, let, let's, and I want to go into a couple of things going forward and then just a, a couple of tweaks this year. Um, you know, first of all, uh, the first four format, uh, we've now had it for quite some time on the men's side. Uh, and, you know, look, look there's always going to be complaints uh, and, you know, for to dive even deeper, for example, Notre Dame wins, they go to San Diego, they win again. Indiana wins, they go out to Portland, they lose. Uh, and so you hear both sides of the argument of when a team plays in Dayton going to the West Coast, just to educate those that still don't get it, uh, you know, just about how hard it is to necessarily move teams around uh, on those 11 and 12 lines to accommodate a potential win and where you may be that next round. Well, remember, we have 136 men's women's teams that are moving around to get into first and second round sites that week over just a couple of days. And when you got, uh, you know, 24 different sites in play for the first and second rounds, both championships, there's a lot of logistics involved. Um, we have to set up a bracket that's fair and, uh, and balanced. And so it means that sometimes teams have to go great distance to get to their first round site. It's imperfect, um, but as you note, we've had uh, teams move out of the men's first four all the way to the final four. We had teams go into the second round this year, uh, Notre Dame, as you note. So, um, you know, something that the committees will continue to look at. I know the women's committee um, has to decide, having gone through the first four experience on campus this year, whether to stick with that format or to consider a predetermined site similar to first four in Dayton for the men. Um, which again was just incredibly successful this year. The University of Dayton and Dayton community do such a great job. Both sessions sold out again this year. Um, so we, we've got you know things to consider. We we work on tweaking the championships every summer with the basketball committees. And I, I have to note that we had incredible leadership from both committees this year. Nina King, the athletic director at Duke, the chair of the women's basketball committee, and Tom Burnett, the commissioner of the Southland Conference, the, the chair of the men's basketball committee. They did yeoman's work in, in all these changes we, we uh, collaborated on together this year and very happy for them and, and proud of their effort as leaders of those two committees. Yeah, and, and, and a special shout out to both of them. I mean, uh, Tom Burnett retiring as the Southland Commissioner, uh, outstanding uh, tenure in all of college athletics. And for Nina, uh, you know, do, pulling that double duty. I mean, she had to be there for Coach K's, you know, whenever it be his last game and trying to go back and forth with her responsibilities as the uh, women's basketball selection committee chair. So she did an outstanding job trying to balance the day job and she had to be there for coach K. And then obviously her responsibilities as the committee chair. So with Dan, you know, talking about the first four on the men's side, uh, Lynn, let's talk about the women's side. 
So first time having the first four, more opportunities for women to get a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. What are some of the options now going forward with the first four? Uh, I think there's two primary options. And as Dan noted, the committee is diving into this right away and has to get uh, feedback from stakeholders, including the Women's Basketball Coaches Association. Um, the, the two options really are is to whether uh, to move to a predetermined site of which all those teams would go. And then from that, um, based on advancing, would then move out to the first round games. And currently for the Women's Basketball Championship, those first and second rounds are still conducted at campus hosted sites for the top 16 seeds. The second option is to continue the model that we uh, put in place this year. And that's where those first four games occur at those campus sites. And then the advancing team stays to play that first round game. I think it... Um, as we went through the experience this year and we saw how um, you know, there was attendance around those first four games, you saw uh, programs supporting other programs, like those that were sitting there waiting to play the first round game, were going in, in the sense of supporting women's basketball in the community. And we saw social media posts, for example, where Coach, Coach Staley at South Carolina and that program was there to support the game. And then there were some after engagements with that, with that first four team and those coaches and everything. And that's representative of the women's basketball community. So as the committee wrestles with this, um, I think they have to decide what's the right thing for the women's basketball championship, where we added our growth stage for the next couple of years. And it's not a decision of perpetuity. It's just a decision of what is right now as we continue to intentionally grow this championship and what is best for the student athlete experience and our teams. In fact, we're gonna be following up individually on behalf of the committee with all eight of those teams and to get their feedback, their head coaches and ask if, we, if a student athlete can also be on those calls to get that perspective, to help that committee conversation. Uh, Lynn, one thing that was you know, I mean, uh, constructive criticism on, on the bracket on the women's side, and this has happened on the men. Uh, and sometimes you cannot predict uh, if a certain seed ends up essentially in their in their in their home area. And it could have happened, for example, on the men's side with Villanova if they'd played in Philadelphia as you know a, a three or four seed or what have you. So UConn plays as a two seed against a one, you know, in Bridgeport. Um, just, you know, if you could just explain just how things like that do occur because they can occur in the bracket. Yeah. The first thing for regional sites, those are determined several years out. So in the case of, in your example, Bridgeport being assigned uh, to host a regional site, um, that was assigned four or five years ago. So you can't even predict, you don't know where teams are necessarily going to be sitting at that point. And then um, there are some requirements around uh, those teams that would play. So for example, any team playing at one of those sites can't play more than three games at that venue. And in fact, UConn this past year, for example, played zero games in that venue. But then as the committee puts the bracket together, they, um, they have policies that they follow about going across first the one line about where teams are assigned. Um, and, and then if they were to progress to forward toward the regionals, and it happened to be the case that based on those policies this year, that then the two line as those were put into place that UConn ended up in that Bridgeport regional. Um, and I would just point out too, that earlier with the top 16 reveals with the committee based on um, what they were doing, there was a scenario previously based on where things were seated of which um, UConn, for example, would not have been in Bridgeport, but at the end of the season and where the way things 
fell out and the committee following its longstanding policies, that's where those teams ended up. Yeah, you kind of ended up finishing very strong toward the end of the season. Um, all right, let's talk regionals going forward. Dan, next year, first time ever, uh, the NCAA tournament will have a regional in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, we, we expected this was going to happen at some point. What are your thoughts on Vegas now being part of the regional setup in 2023? That's very exciting. As, as uh, viewers know, I think the NCAA wasn't able to hold championships in Las Vegas in the state of Nevada for a long time. That policy changed just a couple of years ago. So it's exciting to have the Division One men's basketball championship uh, kind of be the first. Uh, I'm sure will be many NCAA championships held in Las Vegas. Of course, it's been a great site for conference championships over the years, basketball in particular. Um, so we're excited about being at T-Mobile Arena for the men's tournament. Um, you know, last this year, we also had uh, first time at, in San Francisco in, in a number of years at the Chase Center, which is a beautiful new venue. So should be great for the student athletes, their experience, the fans. Um, we'll be back at Madison Square Garden as well for the East Regional in New York. So uh, looking forward already to uh, next year. And of course, Next year, we've got the final fours in Houston for the men, Dallas for the women. The women will celebrate uh, having all three championships, divisions one, two, and three uh, crowned in Dallas. And, and all championships next year will celebrate uh, the 50th anniversary of Title IX. So a lot of things to look forward to, even just in the, the wake of this year's successful championships as well. Yeah, I want to get to that in a minute. I just want to finish up with the regionals for the women because there is a tweak next year. Um, and it's great with Vegas, San Francisco, moving west to get more venues, and in the women, Seattle and Greensboro. Uh, so going to two regional sites, sort of a super regional, uh, what was the thought process in that, Lynn, to sort of condense uh, for two super regionals in 2023? Yeah, I think next year, it's not Greensboro, it's Greenville, I think. Excuse me, Greensboro. Um, Greenville. Yeah. Uh, we were in Green, Greensboro this year. Yes. Um, so a couple of years ago, as the committee, um, as they always do, as Dan noted, you know, both committees, they look at continuing to evaluate the championship format and other issues. So a couple of years ago, the analysis around Foresight's regionals and also um, trying to be responsive to their strategic priorities, the decision was made to move to two sites for regionals, eight teams at each site. You basically play games at all, every single day. Um, it doesn't change the way that the, the the advancement philosophies or anything. You just have more teams in one location. And it, it was to be responsive to trying to continue to increase attendance. It was being responsive to trying to continue to increase the um, value associated with being in different communities as we bring women's basketball there and continue to look to grow the championship. So it's really exciting as we look uh, forward to doing that. And I think it's a prime example of where um, having something different than the men's championship has, it's been a very thoughtful, intentional analysis that the committee did to identify why um, the women's basketball championship, this model, uh, they believe will serve, serve it better in the long run. Um, so really excited about that and the things that we're going to be able to do and really bring a different degree of celebration of, of the women's basketball championship to those two communities um, this time. Um, for Seattle, it's, it's a first time opportunity for them to host um, in this in, for regionals. And it's been a long, long time. I believe it was the late 80s, the last time they were involved. And I actually think it was Tacoma that was involved in hosting. So to get back as they have a new venue um, that's also just been open is really exciting. And Greenville's a proven host. So um, really looking forward to it. 
Yeah, there's no question uh, the Seattle community has supported the Seattle Storm exceptionally well in the WNBA, and obviously the state of South Carolina has done a great job with women's basketball. Dan mentioned Dallas, Divisions 1, 2, and 3 at American Airlines Arena. Um, how will that play out for the women? Well, it's this will be the second time that we have a um, joint Division 1, 2, and 3 uh, championship for women's basketball. Um, between the three divisions, it really has been an objective that about twice every 10 years, you have this opportunity to really bring the three divisions together. Um, so from the previous experiences on this, the way it's gonna play out is that the division one uh, timing of the games where semifinals on Friday and championship on Sunday will still be the format. Division two and three will have their championship games on Saturday. Um, it is, it, and Dallas as part of their bid, and also as we have already started planning with Dallas, they are fully, fully embracing this. It, it truly is an opportunity for us to uh, provide a really different championship experience for those division two and three student athletes because they get integrated into all the women's final four activities activities. Um, they get a play in an NBA arena. Um, and those are things that they typically may not experience. So, um, you know, what we want to do is provide these life-changing, memorable experiences. And that's what we're going to do as part of this championship next year. So Dan, this has happened before for the men, obviously, if I'm not mistaken, it was maybe going to happen in 2020 in Atlanta. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, but obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. What are the chances this could happen again at some point for the men? Yeah, very good chances, Andy. As, as Lynn noted, you know, we try to uh, do this every so many years. Unfortunately, we lost that opportunity in 2020 in Atlanta, uh, haven't scheduled it in a future Final Four, but we are in a bid process for future men's and women's Final Fours, 27 through 31, and uh, will be considered as part of that uh, awarding in the future in the fall. Uh, Dan also mentioned, Lynn, that uh, this is sort of a year-long celebration of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. What other sort of tangible things will we see with the women's game in the celebration? Well, the NCAA celebration actually launched this past January as part of the NCAA convention. So we already did see um, in Minneapolis where um, there was there were efforts within their community to really honor Title IX and uh, as they worked with local female leaders and others and um, to really celebrate the championship. But with the NCA celebration, it was it was an intentional target, if you will, because we have the Division One, Two, II, and Three championships together in Dallas next year. That um, that would serve as a culminating event of this Title IX celebration. As Dan noted, the celebration is being done throughout all 90 championships, both genders, and it already is unfolding as we see. Um, but with, with that experience, I, I expect that there's going to bring, there's going to be um, some additional historical perspective to help the community and others continue to learn about what has unfolded over the, the last 50 years relative to Title IX, but also to, to have a lot of conversation and to really focus on really what's next. And as we continue to look at gender equity issues for women in sport in particular, um, so it's really, and, but it needs to be a celebration as well. So the work's not done, but it's a celebration to really honor what, what is a really important um, civil rights law. So Lynn, you know, there's obviously sometimes there's been talk about, you know, should the two final fours be the same weekend? Should they be different weekends? And one thing I, I'll just tell you that I witnessed, and I wasn't alone in this, at least on the men's side, is you do see that those fans, media members, staffers, everyone, is sort of locked in to the women's final four 
at the men's final four on those opposite nights. Um, mm -hmm. And that interest is certainly there in terms of watching it maybe from afar. Uh, what's the thought process, if, if any, of either keeping it the same or thinking about moving it to a different weekend or exactly enhancing that it's just a overall basketball weekend across the country in multiple places? I think you just uh, appropriately defined all the all the considerations around this topic. Right now, there's a commitment by both the men's and women's basketball committees to review the issue and to really explore it. Be and that's been asked by our membership, and that's what they're going to be doing over the next several months and as part of that bid process that Dan just described. Um, but as you just articulated, there's di several different uh, viewpoints on this. You know, if there are if they are on different weekends, does that provide um, really some unique um, independent focus on the two events, but then being on the same weekend, it really is the world's eyes are on NCAA college basketball for that weekend. And it truly is a celebration. And the way we have the staggered days of competition really, I think, impacts that positively as well. Um, so it remains to be seen as our membership evaluates this and ultimately um, make a decision again of what, what the right thing to do is at this point in time. Dan, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Lynn framed it up quite well. I think, uh, you know, we've made a lot of great improvements and enhancements, both championships, the basketball committees that work very well collaboratively together on these improvements are going to continue that work. That's not just a one-year effort. That's a that's an effort in perpetuity, and they'll be continuing to meet, you know, on a quarterly basis at least, making decisions around the Final Fours and, and other things around both championships. So. Um, I think that there's a lot more to do, as, as Lynn noted, uh, exciting times ahead. But, and, and, you know, there's this, as Lynn discussed it, there are differences with the two championships. And in many cases, they're intentionally different, uh, subtly as they may be. And I think it's okay to continue to have those differences as, uh, as we provide the experience in an equitable and, and exciting way for student athletes uh, that don't have to always be exactly the same. They should be exactly the same in some ways. In other ways, there can be subtle differences that benefit both championships. And I think we'll continue to see the basketball committees consider that uh, to provide the very best basketball experience for our student athletes. Well, Lynn, it, one of those things I just forgot to mention about sort of the little things that uh, I did hear players say, you know, is that they, they like that they were able to use the term March Madness. Um, there was a lot of discussion about it. I, you know, I'm not naive to know that you got di different television networks that, you know, obviously, you know, used it. And, but the reality is the players liked it. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on having it sort of be universal? Um, I, I think what we saw was a full, uh, full embrace of March Madness being used for both. And really with that brand itself, it, it is and has been positioned now as though it's a celebratory time of year for college basketball and for our Division I men's and women's championships. It's another season of the year, if you will. Um, so it was fully embraced. And you saw um, when, that, when there started to be some um, more public implementation, such as in January with um, a relaunching of both the men's and women's basketball social media platforms for the NCAA. Then you saw a cohesive branding approach for the first time ever that was, uh, you saw implementation of that for both 
early rounds of the championship. And so there were brand attributes that were similar in how March Madness was used. And then with our two broadcast partners, um, CBS Turner and ESPN, also how that mark was going to be used to promote and market the championship. Um, and to your point, I mean, similarly from the teams, the participants, um, administrators, coaches and student athletes, media and others, I think it was fully embraced and in the manner that we wanted it to be to be fully embraced as both both gender sports are using it now. All right. So let's look at the committees going forward now. We just uh, you know, certainly are saying goodbye to Tom Burnett and Nina King, uh, Dan and Lynn, you can follow up after just give me a sort of a quick preview of what we should see from the 2023 committees, Dan. Sure. Well, you know, I'll let Lynn speak about the leadership for women's basketball championship committee. <clears throat> the men will have Chris Reynolds, the athletic director of Bradley serve as the chair next year. Uh, the vice chair this year, uh, same with the women's committee. So the incoming chair serves as that vice chair and really does help in a leadership role even this past year. Chris played in the Final Four uh, for Indiana University back in 1992, been very accomplished as athletic director at Bradley and uh, excited about his leadership. The committees are now committees of 12. This is the first year committee members uh, numbered 12 rather than 10. We had many new committee members as a result of that, uh, that growth in the committee. Uh, size. So we'll have some more veterans next year that will have been through it at least one time. Yeah, and for the Women's Committee, um, the vice chair this past year now will be moving into the chair position this summer is Beth Getz, and she's the athletic director at Ball State University. Um, tremendous experience in her professional career, you know, stops at University of Minnesota at UConn. Um, you know, and and she's a former student athlete herself and a former coach. Um, so with that, then, as we also have a, a few committee members, you mentioned Nina, but a couple others, there's also some turnover that's taking place. But we have a really great core of experienced committee members, um, several that have been on for a couple of years, had the experience when we were within that controlled environment in San Antonio, but also then just this past year and have been intricately involved in all the enhancements we've experienced and have a lot of great ideas about how to continue to um, you know serve and lead this championship while they are doing the heavy lift that they do and watching a whole lot of games um, and working toward putting a um, a good bracket together then for the 23 championship so dan the next big thing is in the fall uh final fours 27 to 31 if i'm not mistaken um uh for both correct me if i'm wrong lynn but tell me what's the process uh, going forward here of, uh, and I know we'll have time to talk about this, but just, just a, a, a sky view of what, uh, what that'll look like. Well, we've had great interest uh, in hosts for the future Final Fours, men's and women's. The committees will work through that process very deliberatively this spring and summer, including site visits uh, to the potential sites. Um, and we'll narrow that down with in-person uh, site uh, presentations uh, that will happen in the fall before we announce the new sites um, in late October, early November, a date to be determined still, but uh, really excited. We've got final four sites already awarded out through 2026. So I think fans are always a little surprised we go that far out, but it's important we do so because we need the venues, importantly, the uh, hotel rooms and convention center space that gets booked up with other events. So we do need to be uh, quite a ways out. And we're excited about the future possibilities for both the championships. Lynn? 
Yeah, for for women's final four, um, I think an, an exciting thing is that the number of cities that we've seen that have submitted an intent to bid, and many of those had representatives that were in Minneapolis to really um, observe and to uh, observe the experience and what it takes to to host a women's final four. But we have never had this many cities that have expressed interest in ho hosting this. Um, mega elite women's basketball event. So that's very exciting. I think that is representative of, as I said before, the continued growth and excitement around this championship. And the process then is similar as Dan just described, as well as the timeline um, of which the announcements would be made for the 27 through 31 women's final four sites. All right, last thing before we go here, um, there is no sort of normal off season <laughs> anymore, but uh, <coughs> excuse me, it feels like finally that <clears throat> for the first time this off season might be a little more normal than we've seen in the past i don't know if you can actually take a vacation but there's been so many different curveballs the last three years uh lynn then dan just if you could wrap up do, do you feel like you finally maybe have your arms wrapped around a little bit and that we can go a little bit more normal uh forward um Yes, I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic because as, as we've seen world events are that are well beyond our control seem to be coming to, at, at us all left and right. But that being said, I think the thread of just what sport provides to us as a society and a community and how we rely on that to bring us all together and to really just provide that platform for our student athletes to do what they love and such as an integral part of their lives. So as this off season, if you will, um, very optimistic, somewhat cautious, but very optimistic and really um, continue to just work toward fulfilling our responsibility and put the position, the championship in a position to be better than it's ever been. Dan? Yeah, similarly, I'm a glass half full guy. So, uh, you know, I, I look at things very uh, positively, optimistically. I think the future is very bright for the championships. Uh, hopefully the staff has worked so hard the last couple of years um, can have a little more normal planning process. But I think it's also important to note that, you know, we're going through dramatic change in college athletics right now. And uh, certainly for our coaches and student athletes and athletic directors and commissioners, uh, it's not going to be a normal off season. You know, we're seeing it already in terms of uh, basketball student athletes transferring, taking advantage of NIL opportunities. Um, you know, it will be a disruptive off season, but it will lead to an exciting college basketball season next year and then great championships as well. Uh, it'll be great to be part of that change that we're all experiencing right now. Hopefully Lynn and I can contribute in some way. Uh, and help college athletics advance uh, to a new era and in a new way of providing these opportunities that are so essential to student athletes. And it's going to be a great championship, uh, championships next year, championships season, uh, and, and culminating in Dallas and Houston. We're excited about that. Well, bravo to you both for a job well done, an exceptional women's championship and men's championship. And yes, we'd like to have a little bit of normalcy here in the summer. I appreciate you both. And as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching everyone.